Hello and welcome to Talking HE. My name is Santony Vassant. In this episode, we speak to two STEM educators, Dr. Lakeisha Leggett-Jones at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and Donna Smith at Sierra College in Rockland, California. We discuss how STEM educators can create a sense of belonging, increase student confidence, and develop the vital skill of critical thinking. Lakeisha and Donna also share some of their top tips for teaching in higher education. We hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Donna Smith, and I've been teaching at the community college level for close to 40 years. Uh, and I've been teaching in the math department. I've been very blessed that I've taught full time most of that tenure, except for there was a short period of time where I, when I had my daughter, uh, that um, I was deciding if I was going to still stay into teaching and left. and came back and worked a little bit as a part-time, so I've experienced it that way. And um, mm -hmm. I've, um, I, love, I love math and I love teaching. And uh, my biggest excitement is to see a student that's really, really scared and nervous and think they can't do it uh, and turn them around where they kind of become a bright rose. And also those that are like, kind of like me, a little bit on the nerdy side <laughs> and um, love math, basically the, the language of the sciences and how uh, I can uh, encourage them to to learn more about it, that it's a wonderful, marvelous field. I am Lakeisha Leggett-Jones. I am currently an associate professor, um, tenured associate professor at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Um, I had a previous appointment at Johnson C. Smith University, uh, which is an HBCU in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so I have experience teaching um, uh, students who are first-generation students, um, students who are non-traditional, those who may have started, you know, years ago and had to stop, you know, because life happened um, and are now coming back to finish degrees or furthering um, their education for current positions. Um, of course, students of color. Um, and so, yeah, I have, I have um, multiple, you know, levels of experience teaching um, students, including uh, both graduate and undergraduate. Um, and so I guess um, to, to piggyback on Donna, I guess one of my um, most exciting moments to see for students is when they come to the realization that they are truly in the driver's seat, that they are in control. They actually have choice and they actually have agency and that they are the ones who really get to dictate and determine, um, you know, where they go from here and kind of what their paths will look like. Um, so yeah, just whenever they begin to, you know, blossom and, and come into themselves. Thank you both for those introductions. I'd like to start off by asking 
What's your perception of STEM education? Um, I'll, I'll attempt to go uh, first. Um, I think that um, the nature of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics um, has a component of it that because of its complexity, abstract thoughts, a difficult layer, not to say that other disciplines don't have difficulties, they surely do, but many of the concepts are abstract. And the way that we've taught them in the past is we have this formulaic process, which is we introduce the theory, we prove the theory, and we do some examples. And it turns out if you do a reverse design, which is start with a few concrete examples, then the students, you've kind of leveraged the field or, or graded the soils so that they're ready to jump in and, and approach the more theoretical aspects of it because concrete examples are just that examples. That doesn't mean that's always gonna be the case. And as a mathematician, you wanna maintain the integrity of your discipline, which is to, to, to show that this is true for all cases or not true in some cases. But to start with the concrete and then go to the theoretical, I think will help students um, hold on to the theory, the more abstract piece a little bit better. And then another component of it is, I don't know if this was true for you, Lakeisha, but I remember, because I was originally a chem major, that we studied in groups. It wasn't a, you know, all by yourself, make this kind of happen deal because it was just difficult material. I remember people opening their doors when I was in the dorm at three in the morning talking about, I hate PCAM, and they would shut the door and go back at it. But we worked in groups. And so uh, that could be a blessing and can also in some cases uh, be a curse for students that might be like myself when I was in college, I was the only black female in the whole college my freshman year. And granted, it was a small school, um, um, Harvey Mudd. And um, sometimes you feel um, maybe a little left out. However, that I didn't experience that at Harvey Mudd. It wasn't until I had transferred that I experienced this sense of I didn't quite belong in the group or this assumption that, um, that it, if I had questions, I wasn't bright. Um, and it wasn't until we got back the first exams that then people wanted me to be in their study groups. I definitely agree with uh, all that uh, Donna has just laid out. And I'll add to that, that, you know, we're in a world now where we invest in technology, right? It is happening, right? And it's not going to end. And we know that STEM drives a lot of that. And so just as we have this idea and this thought that, um, you know, all of our students should have you know, fair access to education. Our students should have fair access to STEM education. Um, and so I believe that, you know, that's all the more reason why, you know, people like Donna and I have really important um, tasks, you know, in helping students feel like they do belong and that this world also includes them, right? And that they can contribute, they do have something to offer and that, you know, whatever they're bringing to the table is valuable in some way. Um, and so, yeah, Donna, to, to um, also piggyback on your point about working in groups, that is something that is that I find to be really important. You know, and, and with our students these days, you can't quite call it working in groups. For some reason, that language doesn't quite 
land the way that it used to, I guess, for us. Um, but finding some way to, you know, have them working together, have them collaborating and building those bonds and relationships, you know, to kind of get through the material and get through courses, I think is still important. In fact, I have an app talking about using groups. I have an app, it's called uh, Team Shake. And basically you import the student's name in the app and it's, <laughs> the, one student comes up and pushes the button and it spins and it creates these groups and you can set up the groups. Nice. So it's to shake it up. And the fact that team is probably more uh, acceptable uh, in terms of what the students should be uh, should should be working with, and and they need that skill. We have to work in teams. And I, to be honest with you, we know that when people collaborate, uh, that they're able to come up with better ideas than when they try to do it on their own. So yes, why do you think that students of color have a lack of confidence when working in groups or teams, as you mentioned? Well, I think when they come to school, I don't think they are not confident, but maybe they are. I didn't discover that I didn't belong till I got there because I always thought, you know, I did. You know, I didn't know any different. Um, but, I, you know, I was in school a lot longer ago, but I think it could be a host of reasons. I'll just give you a few examples of things that happened to me. And that by no means is to say that that was my whole experience. It was not, but we're talking about this negative part, which is not having confidence. And I remember my chemistry professor, because I was a chem major originally, saying, you're the smartest one of your kind to come through here. And I was so naive because I was young. I was maybe 18, 19, because I, I went to college. I was still 17 when I was in school. I uh, went to college, and so I remember it didn't sit well with me, but I didn't get it. I didn't get what he meant. I just felt like, what, am I a brand of cow? I knew it wasn't right what he said, but I didn't understand the depth of what he said. So if you have a teacher, when the student raises their hand in trig and says, I have a question, and the teacher responds, well, you won't need that if you're cleaning toilets, that just crushes a person. So they'll never ask a question again, especially if they're young and they don't have the wherewithal to go to someone and say, you know, this person said some stuff that's pretty jacked up and not right. And I need to call them on it because you don't have that that level of expertise at sometimes as a student. So sometimes you can have teachers who will counter your confidence by making remarks like that. Uh, and then um, there's also sometimes some students that might do that. But again, that wasn't the whole of my experience, but that's part of it. No, I'm just going to add to that, that, you know, even even more so than their, their professors or faculty members, administrators on campus, many times, particularly for maybe first generation students, they're not coming with you know the same support as some other students so if they're coming from a family you know where none of their elders went to college they don't know this world they don't understand this world and so when they step onto campus you know it's a it's a whole new ball game right they feel like they are starting from the beginning they're starting from scratch they don't know anything and when you're sitting beside someone who seemingly knows everything, you know, understands how this whole operation is supposed to work. They know about um, semester schedules. 
right? Or quarter schedules. Students don't know anything about that. They're used to going to school, having the same classes all year, you know, from August to June. And so, you know, just those little, little things, you know, or, or seemingly small things, um, they can amount to a lot, you know, for a student who's just stepping foot onto campus. And so just not coming with that knowledge, not coming from um, a supportive environment, you know, that can give them um, that same leg up as some other students, that can be difficult, that can be intimidating. Yeah. Okay. You know, when Lakeisha said that, that made me think of something else. Um, also, too, students could come in underprepared, um, not by any fault of their own. So I'll give an example. When I was in school, even though the high school that I went to, the requirements to graduate from that high school were the same requirements to enter UC Berkeley, which is the number one university in mathematics at the time. Um, and so the, the wasn't that the school was not properly set up. However, I remember that another a student friend of mine was being pulled aside, I found out later, and the teacher was teaching that student pre-calculus while I was only just taking trig. So now when we both enter college, this student has another semester worth of content under their belt that I don't have. So then I'm underprepared. I'm already coming in behind the gate, not through any fault of my own. I had just as much wherewithal as that other student, but for whatever reason, that student was pulled aside to get this prep work and another person wasn't. I remember when I got to Harvey Mudd, my friends were talking about their biology classes and they were talking about they dissected cats. Well, I, we dissected frogs. Well, it's a big difference, you know, I mean, you the skill set for one compared to the other. So you come in um, kind of at, at already, it's sort of like one person has cleats about ready to start the race and the other one is barefoot. The one with the cleats is going to have a bit of an advantage. And then I remember my mom, when I graduated from school, I was going to go to Berkeley and get a master's. And she was like, oh my goodness, she didn't want me to pursue higher ed, even though she was a big proponent of education, really dug that in deep. And I'm so glad she did. She was just, she said, that's the only way that a black person can get ahead is if they have an education, but she wasn't so much for the post-secondary education. And I get it. It's like, come on, when are you going to start making some money? So just going to school. <laughs> But so you don't always have this support. And I remember my thesis advisor um, encouraged me, Donna, don't stop at the master's, get your doctorate, get your doctorate. But I didn't. And so that support uh, to move ahead or to go on or like Lakeisha was saying is so important. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and that, that kind of encouragement from home um, in the UK, we call it social capital that students don't have. Um, that's a phrase that we use in the UK. And I think, yes, it's just knowing the, 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 the norms of how, you know, higher education works um, or, you know, any, any institution works. And that, that, that's- And talking the, about the social currency, I remember when I came back from Harvey Mudd, remember I'm the only black in the whole school. So when I came back home for break, my friends would say, you're talking like you're white, whatever that means. And I, you know, I think back on it now, but of course, if that's who I'm all around, I'm not going to still have the same vernacular that I had when I, before I left. And so there's almost this uh, perception that you've left the cause 
by moving into this new realm. So you're teeter-tottering on both realms. I remember a Native American student saying the same thing. It's like I had one teacher talking slow because they thought I couldn't understand things. And then I had my friends back uh, where I was from my home making me feel like I, I, I left, left them and I wasn't a part of them. So you've got this working in, I guess it's code switching, where you're working in two different worlds. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a brilliant... Um... Uh, in YouTube clip from the Oscar-nominated uh, Riz Ahmed, um, who's a London uh, Londoner, uh, similar to myself, um, talking about the just that switching from being a, a Pakistani, you know, London-born guy, and then going to a, pr- a private school one and a half hours up the road, and then coming back and, and hanging out with his crew, um, but otherwise still, you know, kind of having that 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 that. Um, having to play different parts, and you know that's why like dual citizenship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, right. And it's um, even more difficult for students who may be um, still living at home during college. You know, because yes. it's a constant, you know, reminder. It's always something that they have to constantly be cognizant of, as opposed to students who may um, live, you know, on campus and away from home, you know, or out of state. And you only visit during those, you know, peak moments, whether it's a holiday or a school break or something like that. Mm. So difficult, but, you know, you don't have that encounter so often. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 you know, what we call in the UK, the commuter student, but you know, that's the, especially in London or Manchester or Glasgow or any of those big, um, UK cities where there's loads of you know universities, lots of colleges, small small institutions down the road from each other. You know those students come and go one and a half hours every day, commute in and out of you know the uh, the, the college. You know just like you would do in maybe I don't know uh, New York, for example, where or you know some other big um, states that have a lot of colleges in that kind of local area. Um, so um yeah that's a really that's a really good point um so how can we create um, as educators a sense of belonging in the in the stem classroom well i think you know a really important piece is just getting back to the basics letting students know that you see them that you are aware of them that they are not just an id number that they are not just you know a name on the on the roster um, and really reaching out to get to know students and understanding what they are living and what they are experiencing as a student. Um, one thing that I have really challenged myself to do more recently, um, for sure, is to be a, a lot more compassionate and considerate of the responsibilities that students have outside of school, because those things do impact their performance, right? And so whether it's, um, you know, a check-in, if I see that something is is not quite the way that it should be, or um, if a student's performance has dropped, or if they, if I haven't heard from them in a while, just being intentional about actually reaching out to students and letting them know that I see you. Right. And you you do matter. Hmm. And I'm I'm rooting for you to succeed. I want you to be successful. Yeah, those high aspirations as educators for our students is really important. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen often enough that we don't 
you know, have our that kind of best intentions for for our students um, to actually succeed, um, and and kind of almost negate some of the other factors that um, hold them back, um, which is which is something to um, for people to consider as well. I think, um, or more so now than than ever before, as 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 more and more people get you know educated in different ways and through different you know come back to co- come back to higher education come back to a degree come back to a, you know learning something um yes i was gonna um say yeah that that making students feel like they matter i'll never forget my uh psychology professor um and i remember she you know got to know me and i remember i was telling her i said you know i went to the store and I don't know if you've ever heard of grits, but it's 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 a staple, I thought, in everybody's house. So I remember going to the little corner store in Claremont, California, where I went to the Claremont Colleges. And I just remember looking and looking on the shelves and I didn't see any grits. And I didn't even think to ask, do you not carry grits? It, the thought never crossed my mind. <laughs> that they don't <laughs> How dare you? It's like rice. Every store has it. Well, anyway, and I remember telling her about that. And I remember telling her about my, I went to buy some nylons because I wanted to wear, stock. I was going to go to some event. Back then people wore pantyhose and stockings and all they had was tan. <laughs> so anyway, I remember telling her about it. Well, she was Jewish and she said, uh, yes, for me, I understand because when I go, there's no kosher food, any, any of that, that doesn't happen. But what she did for me in that relationship, and I don't know which came first, is I wasn't doing well on her test. It was a psychology course. She says, Donna, in class, you, you speak up, you know what's going on. I don't understand why your test performance doesn't match what I know you're capable of. And just her pulling me aside, and that's that sense of belonging, like Keisha was saying, um, you matter, all that. Her pulling me aside, just her doing that one event, my score shot up the next time. So that sense of she assumed I should do better. Matter of fact, she told me, she said, you're at least a B plus student. So I don't understand why you're not. So she wasn't shocked that I did well or surprised. She expected Expected. Yes. So that teacher expectation and that pulling me aside really made all the difference uh, in the world. And so what I try to do is the same thing now, pull them aside and then learning their names. Now you can do that when you have a small class. The most I've ever done it with was 55 and I'm older now. Before when I did that, I was a little bit younger. (laughs) So I would literally go through and I would say, okay, Lakeisha, it's nice to meet you. And then I go, okay, Lakeisha Santanu, it's nice to meet you. Then I go, Lakeisha Santanu, Jeffrey, I'd like to meet you. Well, I did that for 55 names. Well, what was great is everybody in the class started to know the names. And of course, there were one or two people. I said, please forgive me in advance. I'm going to mess up on you because I'm going to have three Anns in the class or three Harriets or three Jakaris, and I'm going to jack it up. But the fact that I made the attempt to know their name makes a difference. But now if you have an lecture hall with 300 people, that ain't happening, right? So what I've done now is I have them video record themselves and now I respond back, not with words, but I have their video here and I'm using Zoom to record it and then me live like you see me now on the Zoom meeting. And um, when you look at it, 
they can see me responding. I pause the video and go, oh my goodness, you know how to take care of plants? Mine are half dead, what should I do? So that connection with them one-on-one, -on -one, now granted it takes a lot of time to do this, but it makes the students feel welcome. And what's so cool is these things that we're talking about doing for students that are underrepresented, first-generation students of color, they help everybody. It's a beautiful thing that this one thing is not disenfranchising another group, which is what we have done, but it engulfs everyone. And that's the beauty of diversity. When you capture that it's a cool, wonderful, awesome thing, it's like slam dunk, we got this, everybody's engaged. I do definitely agree with, um, with you know, getting to know students' names and pronouncing them correctly. And Donna made the, the, the comment that, you know, sometimes you're gonna mess them up. You know, you, you may mispronounce, you may miscall a student. But another thing is just allowing the space for them to correct you. You know, that goes a long way. You know, just, I'm, I want to get your name correct. So correct me if I mispronounce it. Correct me if I call you the wrong name. Right. Just making that allowance, making that space even goes a long way. When, and so, Donna, I haven't had the misfortune of having a 300, you know, <laughs> haven't had that many ever. Uh, I, I got to say, thank goodness. Um, but just for my classes, I make it a goal to have all of the students' names known by the end of the first week of class. My only request when it's when it's a face-to-face -face or in-person class is that they don't move seats the first week. Just stay in the same place for the first week. And I promise you by the end of the week, I'll have every single one of you. Wow. And just for me to say that, it goes a long way with them. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and you know, beyond that week, they can move, they can regroup themselves, they can work in teams and, you know, all the rest and wherever they are, I got them. And I tell them, the more you communicate with me, the easier it's going to be for me to even remember you. Now, there are many ways to add interactivity to a classroom, both in person and online. You guys have been using a particular tool. Would you like to say a bit more about that? For your listeners who may not be uh, familiar with Top Hat, Top Hat is a, um, it's like, it's an online active learning platform. Um, it's actually an app. Um, that students can uh, download on their devices. So iPads, phones, um, and basically attend class from their phones. Um, and so it makes it possible to do a lot of the things that um, Don and I have mentioned um, here today um, in terms of being able to reach students, um, you know, a bit more seamlessly and just being able to add in um, different levels of support and, you know, that just-in-time attention that they might need at any given point. And so Top Hat, um, they established a new grant. It's called uh, the Black Educator Grant. Um, and Donna and I are able to do some of the things um, that we've been talking about through, through that grant. I'm grateful to Top Hat because some of the things that I'm going to be using as a result of this grant that they've provided are things that I probably wouldn't have done without them. And I think this grant work is gonna help students and not only in STEM, but in non-STEM fields. There was a gentleman, his name I believe was Eric Hines and he was on a conference uh, talking about uh, how do we get more black males in STEM. 
And one of the things he talked about is that there's soft skills that students don't have. And those soft skills could be like, you went to high school, you just sat in the same room, you got a binder of what to do, you knew it. Now you get a schedule and you get a syllabus, but you don't know what to do with it. You don't know you have to schedule in time to study. You don't know that you have to go in early. You don't even know what office hours are, even though they tell you these are times where you can come see the teacher. Well, do you think, are you in trouble? Are you in problems? Do you go to a counselor because you need some counseling because you're having an issue as opposed to not knowing that those are support pieces. That part that Lakeisha was talking about earlier saying that they don't know all the pieces of the puzzle of going to college and how to navigate them. So because of Top Hat, I'm creating something new that's embedded in the course, those soft skills of knowing that you've got to come on time, you can't leave early, that you've got to take notes, those things that students might have taken for granted, and then also the science of learning, which I'll address a little bit later, but um, just all of those pieces of the puzzle that um, will help students, especially those that are first generation. My final question is, what are some of the strategies from the science of learning that STEM educators can use in their practice? Well, um, I got this idea from two colleagues, um, uh, Amy Hatfield and Jessica Lakiri from Columbus State um, Community College. And they talked about teaching to the whole student. And one of the things that they embed in the course are those soft skills, but also the science of learning. Well, I took a course by Dr. Barbara Oakley uh, out on um, Coursera, and I learned so much. So now when I do things, the students understand why. In other words, so when I asked you, okay, so tell me what we did um, on Thursday when we were solving an inequality that was absolute value that forcing them to retrieve that information without looking at any notes helps them remember it more. Well, I didn't know that's part of the science of learning. I didn't realize that when students procrastinate, they do that because the thought of doing math, not actually doing math, but there's a thought of it, literally triggers the pain, pain, pain part of your brain. But what I didn't know is that that pain part that you feel, it'll go away if you just go ahead and do it. But what students tend to do is avoid the math or avoid writing the paper. And if they know that, <laughs> and if they know that it'll go away if you do it, and it helped me because I was really frustrated with my kitchen. I was, you know, I'm here by myself, but my place was looking a hot mess, but I would work myself so late that by the time it was time to go to bed, it's like, I'll deal with that kitchen later. But I hate going into my kitchen with it not clean in the morning. I like a shiny sink. So once I learned that that pain that you think's associated to going in there and doing that because you're tired, it'll go away if you just go in there. And I do it and it takes five minutes because if you stay on top of it, it's easy. And so that was the science of learning about procrastinating, not cramming. Um, and there's science behind that when you cram, you forget it as soon as you learn it. So the next day you've forgotten it. So when you have the final exam, you're um, you're up a creek. So showing them that words and visuals make a difference so that when you're learning this abstract concept to have a visual that you can draw your brain, it sticks in your brain better. So I did that with them. I actually had them watch this YouTube video and they were able to remember more because they drew images and then now teaching them. Now, when you start taking notes, try to use some kind of image. So that's just a few. Yeah, that's really I great definitely tips. learned something new. 
maybe I can work on my own procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> well, she talks about this thing, Dr. Oakley, about Pomodoro, Pomodoro. Hmm. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's it looks like a tomato, but it's, a, it's just a timer. And what she does is you turn off all kind of electronic interruptions. So turn off the, all the notifications on your Outlook, your phone, your iPad, your Ring device that rings your doorbell. Turn it off, 25 minutes, concentrated, focused effort. That's all you do. And then five minutes, you take a break because the brain works better if you have this focused time but if you back off and don't focus, she said Salvador Dali did it and Einstein did it. They would break away. Matter of fact, they would put keys or ball bearings in their hands and they would just kind of doze, kind of relax, kind of relax. And once they actually just about to fall asleep, they drop the keys, drop the ball bearings. It would wake them up and they'd have a solution to their problem. Our brain needs a break. So this chronic thing where I'm going to do this marathon, three hours of studying because i got so much work to do. It doesn't work. So learning all of those things have been very instrumental. And then I'm sharing it with my students. So they watch a little video. I ask a few questions and then I ask them, tell me your experience about cramming. And they'll give you their whole experience. And it's hilarious. One of them even put in there, cramming is panicked learning. <laughs> I thought that was a perfect definition. So you learn from your students. So I'm the one, that's my part of the grant. Lakeisha's part of the grant isn't that part. So I'm the part that's the science of learning. So I, I'm, I'm sold on it. I'm convinced it needs to be done and I've learned from it and I'm teaching them and it doesn't take that much to add that. Now granted, I have a support course that I'm teaching. That means it's the content. Plus I have two hours extra to the course for content that's supporting them. So I have the flexibility to do that. But even if a person didn't have a support course, they could surely say, okay, watch this video at home and answer these questions um, about cramming. I have another one on sleep. Oh my goodness, sleep, oh my gosh. Um, from, uh, I think his name is um, Matt Walker. I apologize if I'm getting his name right. He's a neuroscientist out of UCLA and he talks about sleep. And he says, you look like it when you don't get enough sleep. And he looked like he listened to his advice because he looked good. He looked healthy because he's getting seven to nine hours of sleep. In the United States, that is not the case. It's, it's frowned upon if you got nine hours of sleep. You must be sick. No, that's healthy. <laughs> and it helps with the learning. I didn't realize there's neurotoxins that are in the brain. And when you don't sleep, you don't push them out. So we could go on and on about the science um, of learning. And, and Lakeisha, what, what about your um, aspect of the grant? That is awesome, Donna. I, I yeah. wish I could sit in on, on, this, on this class of yours. Um, so with my uh, part of the grant, what I'm doing is uh, trying to engage students and hoping that with more engagement, um, more attention, you know, and more support, I can increase, you know, the, the level of success of my students. Um, so being able to um, use a lot more formative assessments along the way, a lot more writing along the way. Um, Donna talked about using imagery and pictures. Um, I haven't quite added that in, but I might have to make a note on that, Donna. But really getting students to the point where they can actually articulate what's going on and why they're doing what they're doing um, to make those connections, right? We have students who will pop into a math class and they have no idea what the connection is, you know, from this math class to the last one that they took. 
or the one that they'll need to take next year or next semester. It's like they're all, they do, they take them in isolation and it's like, okay, I'm learning this information, but how is it grounded? What is it connected to? What is the purpose? Why are we here? Right. And so I'm trying to get students to the point where they can actually articulate that. Um, and so using a lot of different, you know, techniques and, and measures um, through through the use of this platform um, and top hat to try and get at just that. And what, what makes that so easy to do is the fact that if you're asking questions that are kind of low level, where you can make them multiple choice, even though you can make the multiple choice a little tricky, sometimes that doesn't mean you get at the understanding, but Lakeisha's saying, no, I want you to tell me what this means. So they have to write it out, which they don't like, but the platform is so easy to grade when they do that. I can just look through, I can scan through so easy and see, oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. Or you can read through them all, check them all that they're right and only uncheck the ones that no, they missed the mark. So it's easy to get at deeper understanding, more conceptual understanding, more critical reasoning with the platform. So I love that. And then I like that part about having them teach. That is something I'm hoping to do. I watched another instructor who did the one with the intro video. He was taking a bio, teaching a biochemistry um, class at a historically black, uh, college and his students part of it they did do the intro video but they also had to do a teacher prep and he would give them a rubric these are the things that you need to be able to show in your video so they would make a video and they would get so much they would lose points if they got something wrong they get a few points if they had some visuals and what happens is he was using Flipgrid so that it would show up and students could see other students videos and once they got an A and once the student gave permission you can show my video to everybody. And they would watch other students videos because they understood the student explanation better than the teacher sometimes. And so it was just a fun. So I'm hoping to add that piece. Lucise, you helped me to remember that about showing what you know and teaching others because that's when you learn a subject is mm -hmm. when you teach it. And so yeah. if they can teach it to another person, then they're good to go. And so I'm hoping to incorporate that in my support class where they're going to have just a little mini exercise saying, okay, show how to factor this polynomial or show how to multiply the polynomial, factor the polynomial four different ways mm -hmm. so that they'll understand that they're all related and what does it mean to be factored? So it's cool. Right. And one of, and one of my, um, not the particular course that I'm, I'm using a top at for, but in one of my other classes, upper level uh, proofs course, I am having my students uh, present their work. They have to offer it to the class and the class's task is to critique their responses, their answers, their proofs. And so at every, every level, I mean, shredded to pieces. Of course, it's all in an effort for us to become better proof writers. But as much as you can write the proof, you also need to be able to recognize when you're looking at one or reading one, that's not quite sound, right? And so trying to get at it from, you know, all the different angles. Um, and yeah, so far it, it's working. Um, the students definitely, they grow and, and they gain a, a, a greater level of respect for their, for their peers, mm -hmm. right? Because they're, they're not only learning from me, but from each other. And it, you know, it, it does something to the class. It, it works for them. Thank you to Lakeisha and Donna for their time. Coming up next time on Talking HE, we speak to Dr. Paul Penn, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of East London and author of The Psychology of Effective Study, 
How to Succeed in Your Degree, a preview coming up. Yeah, sure. Hi, um, my name is Paul Penn. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of East London. And um, I have a particular interest in, if you like, the psychology of the way people go about studying um, and learning and how we can improve kind of university level provisions uh, you know, for teaching and learning and, and making sure that students not only succeed in their degree programmes, but actually enjoy the process of studying rather than think of it as something that has to be endured, you know, rather than enjoyed. Um, so, so, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. Right. OK, well, the first thing I think is is to know students need to be aware of the fact that, that often intuitive ideas about effective ways they study are, are often wrong. And students can often leave, you know, further education and, you know, secondary school and just go up the chain um, whilst having and entertaining these ideas of studying, which are just really not effective. So this idea, for example, of, you know, thinking that it's really just a, a mental muscle approach to reading. The more times you read something, you know, eventually it will sink in by some sort of weird form of osmosis or something like that you know yeah. the highlighter pen is magic and if you highlight something you know you're gonna all the perennial favorites you know which which research has indicated that that, that are indeed what students tend to use uh, and they tend to be quite cynical about other methods you know that we know from the psychological research work um but ostensibly seem a little harder to implement or a bit more difficult to, to deal with initially like you know practice testing for example all that and more in the next episode of talking he until then thanks for listening if you've got any comments or suggestions for future episodes please tweet at talking he pod i've been santa Nuvasant, and this has been talking he